This is Pill Eater. Today is June 20th, 2022. I am here with the fabulous Patrick. Hi, Patrick. Hi, and hello to your audience. Uh, we're here today to discuss Eurasianism and perhaps some other things as well. I'm curious, because um, I found you on Twitter and you talk a lot about Eurasian too, especially it's a, I would say it's a controversial word, especially in this political sphere, because it's tied to Alexander Dugan. And that completely means like Russian invasion or control over the entire Eastern hemisphere. But then again, when you talk about Eurasian on a smaller level, it also means the mingling of East meets West. How do you define Eurasianism in your own uh, political and philosophical sense? Well, the thing that you talked about with regards to Russia, I would call that Russian Eurasianism or Russian Eurasian political philosophy. Now, in terms of how I am using the term, I'm using it uh, about mingling Eastern and Western culture. I'm saying it in particular with regards to culture. And so, uh, but the thing is, is that um, Russia is pursuing a Eurasian path uh, in order to pursue its vision of its own autonomy. And whatever that vision is, it can be a good thing or bad thing, but the core of it is, the so like, is, is, is this concept of sovereignty. And so the mixing of Eastern and Western culture can help people be sovereign on an individual level. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to like or agree with what Russia is doing. Yeah, I mean, when I use the word, or at least how would you have your uh, practice of Eurasianism as composed to Russian Eurasianists? Because that's interesting you say Russian Eurasianists, because that definitely separates you from capital E Eurasian, which I just assume just means mixing of European and Eastern together as an identity politic. Well, like what you're talking about, I think can also refer not only to the cultural mixing, but also sort of like the, uh, like the genetic uh, combining, which isn't, I, I don't really view it as a mix because if you think about like what Europe is, like Europe is clearly a peninsula of Asia. I mean, that's just the way it is. And so you don't say that, people from say like, oh, I don't know, like France and uh, like, like Sweden or something like that. You don't say that these people are like a mix of like two separate races or anything like that. No, I, I don't really view race as a valid concept, but uh, a mixing of, you know, uh, people of European and Asian heritage, I don't really view that as, as, as any, any sort of mixing actually. I, I don't really address the issue of uh, personal mating habits. I think that's just like too personal a thing. I think, I believe in, you know, sort of like a, a privacy, at least on the political level with regards to that stuff. But in terms of how does the Eurasian uh, blending happen within my personal practice? Well, a lot of it has to do with the search for uh, like a Brahmin class that has more uh, healthy values. And so if you look at like the people who consume like, like a lot of like East Asian media, for instance, a, a lot of them are going in that direction because they feel that some of the tendencies in, in the Western media have just become too degrading upon 
upon their soul that it's just like all these like weird things that like nobody like that is just it doesn't make any sense you know and so a lot of people are just um going like migrating away from some of the uh things in the anglo-saxon world i mean i i think that you know americans should be proud anglo-saxons but part of that identity is maybe evolving into a eurasian conception of what it means to be anglo-saxon <clears throat> yeah from your twitter you often will have interesting um political commentary and philosophy commentary and as well have the aesthetics of mostly anime or something eurasian in that could you explain that like process more how you develop that kind of artistic pursuit well i i just like i think it's just healthier to like consume images that like depict uh healthy people people who who are very empowered like oftentimes on some of this anime art, like somebody will have like, like glowing eyes or, or oftentimes they'll have like an idealized depiction of, of the body. And so when, when you think about that, it's just sort of like motivation to, you know, go to the gym on somewhat of a regular basis and stay in shape because you want to be like the images that you see because those images sort of like normalize like what your reality is. And so this is why I, like, I think that like a lot of the stuff coming out of like the United States is sort of like, <clears throat> uh, it sort of like, like glorifies incompetence in, in too much. I mean, everybody's like a little bit of a slob and so you don't really want to um, come down too hard on that. But if you go too far in that direction, like nobody wants to be slovenly. And I feel like if you, if you uh, consume too much American media as it stands right now. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Well, I think of mimesis is an important part of kind of human psychology, especially my thing I've been on for the last two years is Rene Girard and mimetic desire, how we look for role models to emulate. It's just like a human psyche thing. And whatever you want to talk about Confucianism, Confucianism, you know, or some of the other uh, Eastern philosophies, there is a requirement to model oneself after the good life or a good leader. And within anime, you know, I've kind of gotten to controversial circles here where I would even cite Jacques Lacan in the mirror stage, another mimesis thing about how anime is a new sexual desire that's, like you said, outside what Americans might think as sexually pleasing as Cardi B as opposed to it and that thus the new woman becomes an anime girl and that itself intersects into this eurasianism but again that's kind of going on to the whole private lives of personal interests on a subconscious freudian level but again i understand about role modeling and such and that might lead to the breakthrough beyond like subculture and like the Dick Hebdige sense, but then in the mimesis of becoming something you know you are naturally attracted to. As far as the uh, like the like the sexual direction that a lot of like the anime goes into, a lot of it goes into a very psychosexual uh, direct like direction where like uh, like 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 the sort of like romantic experiences become sublimated into like all of these sort of like surrogate activities that 
uh, take on a life of its own. And so when we look at this culture, it's sort of like a process of impregnating the ordinary things in our life with like a sort of consciousness that helps, helps us to have like a fuller uh, experience of, of what it means to be alive. And this ties into that guy you brought up, Rene Girard who's, you know, who did a lot of stuff on mimesis, but one of the things he also did was he wrote about the, the Greek pharmakos ritual, which was sort of like the exiling of, of a polluting influence from one's um, community in order to like sort of like restore the health. And so we don't really have nothing like that, anything like that in, in the United States at this time in that sort of way. But what we do have is, you have a lot of people voting with their feet, like boycotting things and just migrating away because like the most important thing, decision you can make as a society is who the people that you are going to, going to lend your ears to, who are you going to pay attention to? You know, it's important to pay attention to things that, that feed the soul in a good way. So I'm familiar with Rene Girard, uh, the Lacan person you brought up. I've heard the name before. I'm not too familiar with the guy's ideas though. He's more, um, depending how you translate Lacan, Lacan is kind of like a French interpretation of Freud. He's kind of like a, I, I, I like to offend people and say, an old Jordan B. Peterson years ago. Some people would call him a huckster, or a, um, kind of a guy that would just say witty remarks and wasn't really a trained philosopher. He was just a Frenchman who made romantic interpretations of Freud. But other socialist and communist types, or even to Zizek, can read Lacan and see that there's more to it like studying culture. So you have a left-wing Lacan and what you would call a quote-unquote right-wing Lacan. But then again, I look at just basic Lacan as another way of reading Freud. You know, another way of what do people, what is desire? And that Lacan was in classes with Rene Girard. So again, the whole French obsession with desire and the way you think about things. Again, yeah. Was this about the whole commodification of like humanity and how like our consumer culture is almost being like transmogrified into something else? Was that, was that, was that Lacan? Um, you could read some of his writings like that. I mean, I'm not, I can't really bring that up. That's too vague, but I just like thinking about desire and subculture. I think those are like disciplines that are important aspect of wooing someone over to Eurasianism. And by the way, when I talk about Eurasianism, my definition seems to be the admixture European versus Asian influences upon a new society outside capitalist West, but having the values such as opposed to liberalism inside Eastern blocks like China or Japan or Korea or back into New York City or LA, where it's like you rid of the decadence and the good life is, it isn't a continuation of the bourgeois spirit, but certainly uh, values which are decadent and depraved become synthesized into something else simply because people don't like the li life they're living in. I know there's a lot to say on the subject for sure on East meets West. A lot of it um, relates to the conscious use of, of art in, in your society, but some of the other stuff you're talking about, you know, with regards to um, things like, like, you know, like the capitalist system and, and things of that nature. Uh, sometimes people get caught up too much in the mechanics of 
of the system and how it operates, um, they get so caught up that they really can't do anything like, like effective. Whereas the most effective thing that you can do is just practice a particular culture uh, with, with, with your community. And then like through that, <clears throat> like um, through that things can arise through a series of uh, serendipity, serendipitous events that, that result in a modification of the, the way the community experiences the, the so-called prevailing culture within a, <clears throat> within a society. So one of the things that, um, oh, I forget the, I forget the book. Um, it was some sort of dissident book, written maybe in the 60s in the United States. Um, but it said that one of the most important things to bind a group of people together is a symbol. Uh, like a common symbol, just as how cows tend to be branded with the symbol of their um, of, of the company they work for, you would also want a, a community to have a symbol or a collection of them. Making me think of Stephen Heller and his history on logos and things like that. Um, some time ago, I had a class with Stephen Heller at SVA, and his whole background is just doing logos from the far right far-right politics to just commercialism. And uh, one particular logo I remember was the cross swords, which was pretty much, I, mean, I remember he told me in class, it meant a form of royalty or, or some clashing of sorts. And yet there's a band I like called Juju where it just looks like XX Juju, but it's like crossing swords of what? It has all the implications of ideology that follows it. And so, like you said, symbols naturally manifest ideology with it. You know, whether you deconstruct it or not, when you see a golden arches of two M's, you know, it's McDonald's, it's time to eat food. But otherwise, it could be like uh, corporate colonialism of sorts. But again, it's always been difficult to find like symbolisms of trust. You know, a cross might mean Christianity, it might, but it might also mean bourgeois suburban values or something that reminds you of, you know, PlayStation or Nintendo 64 could give you the vaporwave futurism of sorts. When people talk about bourgeois values, it seems to imply um, the the replacement of a conscious of a conscious experience of life with being caught up into like the surface of things, and so rather than people actually communicating with one another as beings, as two beings, and connecting. Um, almost like heart to heart or something like that. There is just uh, an imitation of communication. So, so language, rather than being an actual vehicle and means of communication, language just becomes the imitation of communication. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's like a sterilized form of thing where there's no actual touching between the people uh, on, a, on a level of consciousness because there's the communication. So, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not sure if others feel this way, but when I hear uh, people complaining about bourgeois society, it just seems to be the inability to experience yourself and experience others. Yeah, not to go bad about anything bourgeois. In fact, you could actually argue and say stuff white people like as a cultural trend is 
bourgeois culture in itself. And there's nothing wrong with that, that people, it could be either the bumpkin people that like living in West Virginia or the upper class suburbia of Pennsylvania. People just admire that. And that has became quite essentially the American lifestyle. Yet for a very long time, especially right and left-wing critics have always considered the bourgeois man as kind of this decadent, Athenian, lazy kind of uh, Babbitt type of person, right? But, you know, I remember I had a criticism of my one um, Eurasian speech and uh, and actually a Lacanian critic called me suburbia. You're advocating suburbia. And I'm like, wait, advocating suburbia? He goes, yeah, because suburbia is the manifestation of bourgeois culture. And I was like, wait a second, that's a little too, you know, modern invention of sorts. And it's because you could live in the city and be bourgeois, totally bourgeois. And it's like, it's not exclusive to be, you know, live here, you're bourgeois or something like that. And uh, another digression is that whatever you want to say about suburbia, whether it's E. Michael Jones saying it was a form of social control and isolation, or it was a form of creating a new society, I think this kind of Marxist rhetoric, or at least uh, rhetoric against the weak modern man, it seems to be pretentious in itself, like you're saying. It's like, who is bourgeois? Is it just staying at home and playing video games and not interacting? You know, what is that? Sometimes people might like that in a weird egotist kind of way. But my hope is that bourgeois society plays an important role in politics, who they vote in, whether the bourgeois votes in Joe Biden or they vote in Trump again. I think the bourgeois should be Eurasian in detail, that they should be all tuning into anime and admiring an anime realist lifestyle, even in suburbia. And many urbanites and cosmopolitans dislike that. But I think, no, it's, it's, it's a grassroots thing. It starts at the bottom, but it's also trickles down. It's not just the city. Well, clearly the bourgeois like do like rule our society. And so naturally we would want the bourgeois to like adopt a, a Eurasian way of looking at the world, which can, and this can be the sort of uh, 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 metaphysical falling and rising of Anglo-Saxon identity. So Anglo-Saxon identity can, can uh, can can morph itself into uh, your into a Eurasian construct, essentially. And so, as far as um, this thing you said, well, sometimes people can just you know chill in their house, and even though they're not interacting with other people or whatever, they're still manifesting uh, something of value. I would say that's true if people's experience when when they're in their house not interacting with people as long as they're um as long as what they're doing has meaning to them because i think the key is is not so much how much somebody interacts with people or not i mean people have different preferences uh in that regard and so i would say the key is is just to have a sense of meaning to how one goes about doing things like and this is where uh, a process of introspection can be of tremendous value because when people do engage in a process of in introspection, they're able to act in, a, act in a meaningful way in terms of how they go about things in their lives. How would you explain the importance of anime as an art direction in the sphere of politics? It seems like Marxist or fascist 
Marxists like anything to do with Karl Marx and Cold War Lenin aesthetics and fascists seem to be into the Leibach death in June thing. It seems like anime is almost a third position itself. How much do you think that would kind of influence left and right? And how does anime apply into the aesthetics and uh, as the avatar and symbol of Eurasianism? Well, anime has the aesthetics, uh, aesthetics of, um, you know, both these radical political uh, camps, as you would say, but I think it embodies those, those aesthetics without any of the uh, emotional or, or moral garbage that could, could have associated itself with either of those two uh, uh, radical camps. And so I know you do a lot of, or do some work with uh, Robert Stark, who's like a radical centrist. And so this concept of radical centra, centrism seems to em, embody the, the quintessence of what anime represents and how that representation can then reverberate throughout both the right and the left, bringing it healing. Because think about it how it's like you're walking down the street, right? And, you know, there's just like some corner shop, whether it's like a, like a sandwich or maybe it's like a place where you can buy some good barbecue, but you want to see like a picture of like a very like cheerful looking person, like vibrant, sometimes like, like red rosy cheeks or something like that. And it just makes um, life so much, so much better. And so when the society becomes impregnated with, with like a certain amount of images and stuff like that, this, the, uh, the, uh, this, the, sort of uh, subtle sense associated with those images then informs the uh, common slogans and ways of being that become habit in the society, uh, which creates the sort of uh, group feeling of, uh, of a place. Yeah, I always, I mean, how do you, it's interesting you mentioned Robert Stark's name. How has Robert Stark's radical centrism influenced your outlook on Eurasianism? Because I like Robert Stark in a way that he's open to dissonant politics outside of dissonant politics, almost like a meta, meta narrative happening or something where everything is plausible in politics and philosophy. And those who are kind of shamed as outsiders, ooh, why would you ever think anime has something to do with real life? Or I like to say I'm an anime realist advocate. People will like shun me for it. But then it's like when you're sincere, it's like people follow you and believe you. Like I've always been an anime realist advocate. If somehow we can create designer babies or kids to look like actual anime, I think that's like one step closer to like a real quote unquote transhumanism that isn't so much Skynet AI ruling over us, but like an art direction in accordance with fantasy and the reality where people are living good lives and not kind of hellish, um, uh, you know, realities that are not accordance to the media they take in or something. The, the core is that we want people to have good lives. And so that's the core. Now, now you mentioned some things with regards to anime realism. Um, an immediate example of that that we can all look at is that uh, many of the costume artists 
um, are, are, are imitating anime characters. And so you can see the attention and care given to anime as uh, having a reproductive effect in the world because it's being reproduced in these costume artists who, is, who are almost like the, uh, like the manifestation of, of, uh, um, of people's love for these characters. And so people's love for these artistic forms, it doesn't stop at the artistic forms because we're, we're, we're uh, human beings, you know? And so it just reverberates back into humanity, which then humanity uh, mimics. And so when people get, like are like are into like all this art and stuff, it's not they're not isolated. You're never isolated because um, you're always connected to the larger collective. And so the, the art that we consume, it has an effect on people, especially if you think about things in terms of uh, Jungian archetypes. And so when you think about Jungian archetypes, about how they dwell in the collective, uh, in the realm of the collective unconscious. So when you think about art and people who do art and images and stuff like that, well, what they are really doing is they're manufacturing the collective unconsciousness of humanity, which then bubbles up into the surface through various means. And, and there's many possibilities um, for how that could happen. And now regarding uh, radical centrism and you know the, the use of dis, uh, politics that are um, dissidents within the distant community and, and, and the use of various uh, signs and symbols uh, from various ideologies, some of which are controversial. And so when, when, you, when you look at all that together, because um, that's a lot of things, but if you look at all that together, I think one of the things that you can draw from that is that when you're a, um, a dissident within the dissidents, within the dissident community, that immediately brings you back into the mainstream and the center. And so, but the manner in which it brings you back into the mainstream and the center is it makes you um, a part of a vanguard movement with, within society that, that has a role in helping to shape people's present and future and understand people's interpretation of the past, because if you take anti-social uh, a direction far enough, it becomes ultimately something social. And so you just become a normal person, part of uh, normal humanity. And this all relates to Eurasianism because that's, that's the essence of what Eurasianism is. I like that. Yeah, the way I advocate Eurasianism is through art. And many people think I'm some Carl Schmitt political scientist, which early on, you know, five years ago, I think around December of 2016, that's when I announced the project I would do for the next five years. I was focusing on Eurasianism. And I tried to get into the spheres at the time, like the then alt-right sphere. In fact, you can even argue that people like Andrew Anglin, who did the Daily Stormer or began as total fascism is now basically running away out in Eastern countries, just talking about how much he loves Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Southeast Asian society and how much he 
believes that China shall overcome and destroy the decadent West, which which is funny because there's no dial about that. That is some kind of Eurasian advocacy, even from a far right look at things. And um, besides that point, even that you may uh, consider on a, a softer bleed about, you know, the consumer, normal consumer liking anime and assuming that sexuality is based upon anime or something, the interest in hang tie or something. And um, it's weird because when you announce the truth and you point it out how people project it onto the world, they never look at the genealogy of where it came from, like anime or Asian influences. And so how, how you know, many people just think it is, oh, you have to practice it. You have to uh, do a little jig and do some traditional dance. And I think it's more about art that artistically speaking, you create what Eurasian art would look like. You create aesthetics that you do. And that reminds me of what you're, you're doing on Twitter with the whole Eurasianism and image posting and ways you can convince people into that scene. So part of the Eurasian aesthetic is to be entirely shameless about who you are, because like there's a certain uh, weight that people carry around with themselves when they're caught up in like Western culture, uh, when they don't have any sort of complementary force to balance that with. And so they can, they can, um, they can become absorbed in sort of a morose emotional experience and then feel almost like, tra like trapped in that. But then you find these themes, especially in a lot of Asian art and literature and so on, where people can become liberated from this morose emotional state by simultaneously embracing it and then moving through it and into something that's very pure but, but not in a pure way. And so it's, it's simultaneously uh, pure and, and impure, but, the, but in, in that sim, simult, uh, simultaneous state, it, it's essentially, it is totally pure. And so it's just, that's part of it. But then you brought up a little bit before that, some of these alt-right figures. And I have, <clears throat> I have like nothing to do with anything alt-right, just so people know, but you know, it's, it's worth, um, worth discussing this a little bit at least. Now, you mentioned some, some guy, a Andrew England, yeah. He, uh, he took a very bad path in life because I think it's very important to choose your allies and choose the people who you represent. And you want to, um, and you want to devote yourself to, to I'm, not gonna stop, I'm not speaking for you, but I'm, in terms of a general principle, you want to uh, devote yourself to people who will be able to uh, invest in you the thing that you're investing in them and be reciprocal. That's how people can advance in the world. I mean, you don't wanna give to people who aren't gonna give in return. And so a lot of the things with these like <clears throat> alt-right racial fetishists is, is that they're investing themselves into something you know, uh, into like this concept of a quote unquote white, white race, whatever that is. They're investing themselves into that, but this thing isn't giving them any returns. And so they're just exhausting themselves, ending up in these horrible situations. 
Now, as far as Andrew England, I mean, he was tricked by ideology. He was tricked by the devil, so to speak. I mean, if he had just um, gone with how he feels in his heart and just, you know, like he seems to like Asia better if he just went and lived there and, and um, was loyal to things and, and kept his mouth shut on other things, then uh, he'd probably have a very good life right now. He'd probably be, be very wealthy. And let's, let's be honest, having a good amount of wealth is very important because it buys you the leisure time necessary to enjoy your life and have consciousness and experiences and things like that. And that's what freedom is. Money is freedom. I think that is interesting you said about associates because I've ran through the same stuff as well because when you are a radical activist and politician, you shake hands with people who could get you in trouble. But yet at the same time in punk rock fashion, you don't care. You just want to see how far it can go. And yet you do see like people like Anglin, who is literally on a blacklist where he literally can't enter the United States anymore. But my, my interest has been like, like you said, you point out errors within that scene, within the dredges of the, those punk far right scenes. And it's because like you said, it's like racial fetishist, but when you call them out on say, you know, defining things like the white race or, the admixture European personality and all that, they seem to get in their own glitch and loopholes, or they must in return accept a certain logical outcome. And it's hard when you put it out there because most people just go in denial. They go in frenzy, right? They rather would just hear like a classical, you know, racist joke or racist screed, all that, instead of um, something that has kind of funny implications to them. You know, I always found that far right HBD human biodiversity sphere interesting was because of, you know, race is such a great in party uh, in priority. It must be above, say, economic dimensions. Yet it, it's really just some really bizarre, I think, pandering to subculture because I've met critics and opponents and hecklers from both right and left. And I always thought I was a political outsider in all spheres and associating with Robert Stark, it seems to be that is the only safe way to actually, like you said, develop some Eurasian punk artsy subculture of sorts. It's just, I haven't found the advocates to take them over. You know, what is radical? What is going against the state? For all I know, I could say Caleb Maupin's party of CPI is just as important to go against the state, even though that is a friendly communism for everyone with civic nationalist tendencies. So that, that type of communism you're discussing, it's a, a more, uh, they call it patriotic socialism, I believe. Now, I'm not familiar with this patriotic socialism scene enough to really comment on it or um, in, endorse it. I mean, but like what I will say is, is that that whole scene, it's, it's more in line with sort of like these actual communist movements in areas of the country that have actual communism. I mean, I would um, I would be very wary of uh, mainstream um, uh, leftist thought of, of, of American origin. I think that if you're going to get into leftism, it's important to um, it's important to uh, get it from areas outside of the center of imperialism, because that's what we would call the United States. It's a center of global imperialism, and so naturally. Um, this isn't the place where you'd want to get your leftist ideology because the leftist ideology 
from the United States would naturally uh, uh, be designed to support the imperialist system. And so it'd be, it's like the left, leftism in the United States is anti-leftist. It's anti-leftist, you know? That's, that's, that's what I would say about that. So how did you get into the political sphere or what actually motivated you to go out and kind of just engage with, um, you know, within political commentary and philosophy, especially on Twitter? Uh, politics isn't really my main interest. I'm more interested in it just because there's like so many um stupid things that people are saying right now. And I just want to offer people uh, another perspective um, because if you study a uh, Juch thought, which is the uh, philosophy of North Korea, one of the principles that they talk about is that the most important work in society is attending to the ideological health of society because the, the ideological state of people, um, that, that determines the social destiny. And so it's important if there's like, like a, a point of view that you really feel strongly about that aligns with your heart. Um, I don't think a, a person should um, sacrifice their well-being uh, in order to uh, disseminate an ideology, but just in, in the process of normal life. That's, uh, you know, sometimes, people may think about their opinions and, you know, and so, um, but to expand on that, like one of the things that, uh, that I don't like about, the, about people's uh, conception of the world in the United States is I don't like, um, the, I don't like the role that race plays in society, but I also don't like the conception of race, like what does race mean? Uh, I don't like that they're turning it into this color-coded uh, thing, and then assigning people like personhood and personality uh, based on the way in which that thing is defined. Because, like, then once you get into things like that, people can engage in attempts to psychologically undermine each other by uh, impregnating racial stereotypes um, with, with certain qualities or negative qualities, which then can be used as almost a tool uh, of psychological enslavement of, of a population into a manner and way of being that, that denies the, the mind autonomy and, and, and the soul or individual any, any free will at all. And so when I think when we examine the racial question and uh, questions of identity, I think when you're just dividing it based on color and then saying that the, the colors are this and that, I think that's very limiting uh, to the individual. And people might want to explore wider ranges of identity and also challenge stereotypes associated with whatever label uh, might have been imposed upon them by society. Yeah, I noticed that as weird as this sounds, it's like you said, the whole race baiting, or at least this group, that group goes a totally along with identity politics. I think it has something more now to do with subculture than anything. It may be true that there are bio biological realities, 
However, I think it's subculture that motivates people. What is quote unquote white? What is quote unquote black? What is quote unquote Asian? And I think ultimately this plays into conceptual ideals of um, liberalism where you could be free to do what you want. You're a blank slate, but you know, I'd rather associate with black subculture. And then that subculture becomes more priority than say playing the game of liberalism. And I think ultimately there, it's like people want two different things, but um, rather be defined by a cohesive identity politic. And it's hard for some people where they totally cannot be, say, a gamer because there is a subcultural interest or guilt by association of those people. And I think people as adults naturally divide themselves and say, like you said, finding groups who are going to support you versus those strangers you may knock on their door and try to sell them cable, but they're not interested and you just kind of move along. And I think that's what happens with a lot of these political spheres is that they're too fringe and out there. This group's patriotic socialist. This one's like homo leftist. This one is hardcore Hitlerian. This one's, and I think people look at it and it's just kind of a smorgasbord of weird dissonant cultures that never agree with one another. And so when you're talking about a subculture, a subculture uh, is essentially a sodality. Now the term sodality, it's a gender in inclusive term to refer to uh, fraternities and sororities. And so uh, I, I, I use the term sodality. And so a subculture is essentially a sodality, uh, a, a fellowship, if you will. Now, fellowships can have two basic directions. They can be fellowships of empowerment or uh, fellowships of disempowerment. And now there's a very clear way of, of defining um, whether a, a sodality is empowering or disempowering or a subculture. Um, does, do the people in, in the subculture offer each other uh, mutual aid? Um, that's one question. The other question is like, what sort of memes are being imbibed and produced by the culture because the mimetic health of a culture is very important to the mental hygiene. And so if you're in a culture with uh, bad mental hygiene, then that could turn you into a mentally ill person. And so this is why when you think about uh, the term brainwashing, I mean, it's so strange that in uh, the, what we call the Western world, so strange that in the West, brainwashing is a negative term. Wait, wait. So you're telling me that cleaning my head of pollution is negative? So, so what, like being dirty and being a slob is negative? No, no, brainwashing is good. It's, it, it refers to ideological health. And so the question is, does a subculture have ideological health or not? Now, maybe I'm too stark in the way I look at that. Some people like to be a little bit more cool and not into like dividing things in that way you know, like they like to be a little bit more flexible or something like that. But I, these core principles, I think, are are very uh, important to pay attention to. And then also, um, you're talking about, I think you mentioned like the neoliberal system and how um, some people within the neoliberal order may embrace uh, Black culture, but, but that culture is part of the neoliberal order, even though it also simultaneously um, is outside of it, or even in some ways can go against it in, in some respects. And so this brings us to the principle of the paradox of existence, 
And within that paradox is that everything, within, uh, everything contains within it the seeds of its own undoing. And so that's why to get through a system and into the other side, into something new, into a new world, you go through the system because the system itself contains the seeds of its undoing. You don't fight the system, no. That's, 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 um, that's beyond the pale. It's beyond the pale to go against the system. You go with the system because as you go through it, the seeds of its undoing are there. And if you don't like the way the system is, is headed, you, you go on a mimetic journey that's within the system, but then contains the uh, undoing of the system into a new world. I like that. It's, hmm. you know, it, it, it's weird because my, my, my thing is the new world thing. I just want to get onto because in a way the artist and intellect, they create, we write books, we do paintings, we make music, we write a short story or a novel, or we sing and ultimately become these activists, these advocates for that said new world. It's weird because common, you know, I would even say bourgeois people just want to consume, you know, live and die. They want to be gay this month or trans that month. But then in that current zeitgeist, it's just something they're caught up in. And then sooner or later, they'll just die. And then the next zeitgeist goes in. It's weird being an artist because you have an uphill battle against everyone else. And you're trying to say advocate for uh, Eurasianism. Yet at the same time, most people just don't get it. They think it might be like a Nazi movement or like some fringe communists or fringe communist or something, or just, um, oh, you're being insensitive. You're talking about race. And it's like something so obvious in the room where it's like, no, you're talking about like the East meets West art aesthetic direction and good life that falls in which um, the ide ideology is developed. And so I think to myself, how in the world, and this is my always my concern is do you persuade normal people with objective and empirical truths in front of them to say, look, Eurasianism is happening now. How many times do you see it? Why do you think like most normal people go into denial when something so obviously true is right in front of them? Well, this brings us to a classic way of establishing influence in the world taken from the I Ching, uh, which is a book. It's, it's, a, it's a book from China generally associated with uh, divination, I Ching, I Ching divination. But its, it's value, I wouldn't say, is isn't that. Its value is that in its like uh, its description of each hexagram, which is sort of like a Chinese tarot card or something like that. But anyways, in, in the I Ching is this idea that um, that in order to make change in society, sometimes you don't go directly to the king or to the ruling sort of clique and express your idea to them. No, instead you go to the people, spread your idea to the people, um, gather a consensus to the extent where the consensus is large enough to have a social impact. And then once you gathered your strength through your ideological work, then you sort of unveil yourself to the powers that be because then you're in a position to negotiate. And so in order for one to gain ground in that manner, you have to gather your strength 
to be in a position of negotiation. And so in this sense, you would think um, gathering strength is just like going, taking the easy way. So just implant the, uh, the idea of whatever it is you're doing. Uh, you know, this is what I would suggest um, to whoever is uh, most friendly to it. And then as you get more and more people, then you develop what is called thought mass. And so if we look at the laws of gravity and so on, everything in the universe has gravity. Well, this would include things like consciousness and belief. So rather than challenging people on the basis of logic and reason, that's a mistake. Um, the brain is a muscle. And so when you have a lot of people believing something, that's really important muscle power right there. And that can... Uh, make people at least respected. I like that. Yeah, because I think by making good art or something, people or explaining yourself emotionally how you feel and what, you know, that's, I always thought in a way you can best explain an argument that you emotionally feel this way, not because you have a fetish or you're objectifying something. I, I think those are like stupid liberal arguments that try to you know i think it's more about almost there is this kind of urge to express it because it's meaningful in life there's this good thing you're reacting to i wouldn't say trauma but i would say uh an urge to do uh better you're not like tripping on something and you're irrational you're rational to finding romance a real platonism and I think that might be a cause within uh, argument within people. Like you might say communism is ideal or anti-capitalism is ideal because people are just better off having, you know, no anxiety over their accounting budgeting and they don't need to make X amount of money in debt to accomplish something rather, you know, people are happier if, you know, so if you're like your Eurasianist, you say, listen, I'm a Eurasianist is because this aesthetic, this mannerism, this style is just positive on all ends and it's against decadent culture and in favor of a subculture which is more good to people or are open to art, open to certain types of art. And that's me and you project yourself into that, which I think is also like an Eric Erickson thing about psychosocial narratives and whatnot. But it's interesting to think about how it's not just by logic, like a Ben Shapiro thing. It's more like a, an emotional urge. I am gay because I believe it's good because that's who I'm attracted to. It's almost primal or innate in a way. Are you there? Ruh -roh. Yeah, my, my, my mic was my, my mic was off, but I was saying that um, these ideas that you're um, that you've gone through, like these are these are brilliant uh, uh, concepts that have been brought up by you. So yeah, I'm like I'm grateful you you brought things in this direction. And one thing that uh, perhaps I can add to it is that um, I would say that a fundamental problem one. Um, may encounter is this this notion that uh, idealism 
is innately discredited. And so some people act like idealism is innately discredited. And I'm so disgusted with that line of reasoning that I've decided to believe that total and absolute value is contained within idealism. And so the ability to put your ideal out there in contradiction to anything realistic or logical and stand by it. I mean, I would say that is, is about as meaningful as anything that one can experience to, to be totally idealistic in the world, putting yourself out there and really just trying to make the world a better place. Yeah, where I feel like it's not about logic and argument. You know, I've read so many books, here's why, and a stuffy intellect. Sometimes it's just emotional urge. It's, I like this. I like what it looks like. And therefore, I know it's good by instinctual, innate drives. And people might say that's stupid, but it's like some of the best arguments is, you know it's good because it's in front of you. Come on. Oh, yeah. Okay. And so, like, when you bring that up, I mean, yeah, like, like, like we could give um, a number of examples to, to illustrate this, this principle, but I almost fear to do so because, you know, what if I bring up a principle or, or an implementation of it that the audience doesn't agree with? So I feel it's almost safer to not illustrate this with examples and let people maybe come up with their own uh, example of how to illustrate this just due to not wanting to be too offensive um, to your audience. But if I could just circle back a little bit, um, I'd like to bring up the importance of symbols and how a symbol is given uh, what could be called mystical potency. And so it's important that a symbol by itself is really nothing, you know? But to give a symbol like mystical potency in an ideological context, I mean, that's very important. And so um, a symbol associated with an ideology becomes mystically uh, potent when the people involved with an ideology or subculture have a, like, have a dedication or loyalty to that uh, subculture ideology you know, to the extent of giving each other mutual help and, you know, sticking by their word at least uh, as much as possible, uh, keeping their oaths as much as possible, I would say, that helps give a, a symbol associated um, with an ideology mystical potency. And so I think that's very important uh, when it comes to attending to the health of a community. The other thing too is that people might want to consider is the uh, practice in China of, of um, pro like protecting people's well-being through talismans. And so there's all sorts of uh, prosperity talismans that can be carved on woodwork and then just adorn restaurants. And it's done consciously as a way of helping people to have good luck. And that's especially important at restaurants because um, eating together is one of the most important aspects of communal behavior with the ultimate end of communal behavior 
to ensure uh, both our mutual financial and, and wealth of consciousness and love and romance and so on. Could you, um, is there any other important topics other than your Eurasianism you incorporate or art or that is meaningful expressed in your medium that you want more people to understand or know about? Um, you know, that's a, that's a very um, important question. And so what I would say, the, uh, the way I would answer that is, is um, the process of reducing culture to incantation. And so I think if you view culture as essentially incantation, so the memes that people consume and share, uh, the different ideologies they say, not as uh, representations of quote unquote reality, but rather uh, of, of attempts to uh, manipulate reality. And so this is what I mean in terms of viewing culture as incantation. And this ties into politics. And so when you get into politics, um, in democracies, political power uh, flows to, is, is, a, is a process of conjuration, and so uh, conjure. And so in uh, democracies, it's, it's, you know, it's all the power has been, has flowed back to individuals. And so the way people attain political power in democracies is through a process of conjuration. And conjuration involves invoking the correct symbols and ideologies and principles in order, in order to uh, uh, garner moral capital from, from the public. And so it's, it's a process of sowing and reaping and then garnering this uh, moral capital and the correct use of ideology, symbol and meme and so on uh, over a process of time is called the, the conjure, conjuration of power. And so when you get into these subcultures that talk about the concept of an elite, um, this is actually sort of like a psychological trick. And so when the people uh, believe there is an innate elite in their society, it's, it's a way for uh, people who have conjured power to uh, not have to share that with others. And this doesn't, I'm not um, implying that people with power in the United States have uh, sort of malign interests or anything like that. I mean, I, I'd say it's almost more the fault of people themselves for promoting this meme that there's an elite. It's like a, a masochistic thing where people are addicted to this. It's political masochism, basically. And I would say political masochism is the defining feature of American political life. And so I think if you want to do any good in society, you have to do it with the understanding that you're essentially dealing with a masochistic public. That kind of this us versus them, or we have to go against the elite, whatever the ambiguous elite is, seems to be just an error in thinking and dissonant politics, because it should be more about urge and motivation or the artist's egotist free will and to get their expression out there, right? It's about the experience of consciousness and like what it means to be a person. And this goes into things like exploring our desires, um, exploring who we are. And 
you know, the process of like the idea of a safe space. Well, like what is a safe space? A safe space is like a, a sanctuary or, or like a temple. And so when you look at like how uh, much of the establishment power in the United States is, is, is uh, and I'm not anti-left, but is sort of held by people with uh, left-wing things. It's because they have more of like a, a, an instinctual understanding of these things. Like, well, no, it's, it's like there'd be sanctuaries that people develop together where they are free to explore identity and who they are and different ideas and discuss them in almost a round table setting. And then it's like we give, uh, then through um, communal gatherings, people can give birth to this culture within society. I mean, that's how the uh, United States was founded. It was founded by a group of people gathering together in a, like a sort of subculture. I'm not preaching anything like revolutionary or something like that. This is, uh, uh, very this is anglo-saxon like normalism this is like totally normal uh behavior within the anglo-saxon world which can essentially become like a at least on some level a eurasian construct and so yeah would this stream of consciousness or opening consciousness it how does how does it exactly relate to eurasianism and what makes eurasianism important to that consciousness Um, I just, well, okay. How does this relate to, to Eurasianism and how does, mm, it's, it relates to access to a wealth of behavior patterns. And so when you're looking at different, um, cultural zones in, in the world, you have um, you have like almost like a library of procedures in each zone, and these these libraries of procedures, so to speak, uh, have within them records of patterns of behaviors to achieve um, particular results. And so, when we look at these patterns of behaviors and procedures within Europe, Asia, the rest of much of the world, throughout most of the world. Um, that's what you're essentially doing. So when you, when you think about somebody who's into art and exploring desires and stuff like that, they're almost like, uh, like journeymen and journey women who explore these halls of records, finding snapshots and then grabbing them and thrusting them into like the public consciousness or sometimes they're combining two sets of procedures from different areas and melding them together in their own way and like throwing that out into people or just catching glimpses of things and saying, wait, no, here, let's go in this direction. And so you can almost view artists as opening doorways to the like future possibilities. And so if you look at like art is essentially a window to destiny do you want to like go in the direction of the way these people look depicted by this art, or do you want to go and open the, that sort of quote unquote dimensional doorway and enter into the world opened by this art? 
And so this is a lot about reclaiming personal power, understanding that artists are creators, but artists are also opening up dimensional doorways to new futures with every image that they draw. And so do you want that to bring that image into the world that you live in? We're almost at the end of the podcast, but is there anything else you would like to discuss, Patrick? Um, let me see. Nothing really comes at the, at the, um, no. Is there anything else you wanted to discuss? No, I think that's a lot to comprehend, actually. I mean, I'm just thinking about how consciousness relates to even, I'm thinking of Hinduism. If you can go all the way back to how enlightenment is something you're either within a caste system or within Buddhism, you break away from the caste system. And so in a way you could think of the erasion as an aspect of the individual, you know, Arthur Schopenhauer-esque spirits that the Western man has, but at the same time of obedience or harmony within nature. That's just kind of my first impression interpretation. No, I mean, I'd say that makes, that makes a lot of sense. It's, it's, um, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's important that people feel free to be who they are. And I, um, it's important for people to understand that they have permission to dare to dream and, and that they can like travel through the world, not as a subject, but as a decadent sovereign whose emotions are so strong that they can just like warp reality with with just you know very basic gestures and so on and i think that you know we really have to sing the praises of people because i mean aren't people just wonderful i always kind of vision my future as kind of the high school anime but into my own kind of world where I can be an artist in it and everybody is just in harmonious nature. Like the design, it's like everybody wants the high school anime in romantic context, but they haven't made a political or philosophical or cognitive therapy doctrine to get there or something. They can only create the art through Steven Universe or CalArts stuff, but they can't envision or put it into praxis in a weird way. Well, what you're talking about seems a lot like what Kavinsky does. He's sort of like a, um, uh, he, he's like, he does synthwave music. He's kind of like inspired by the 80s. I think his music may have been featured in the movie Drive with uh, Ryan Gosling. And Kavinsky, if you look at a lot of his uh, music videos, it always like shows him sort of like walking around like the high school like football field, like wearing his like uh, like that jock type um, jacket and stuff. And it's just, uh, and he's sort of like living the anime, like dream through his like music and his audience and things like that. And he's pretty much a political force in his, in his own right. Like I would um, imagine that he has a big influence on Macronism that's, that's in a very powerful movement in France.
how how much is is it how much of that influence you would say partakes in between the synth wave 80s aesthetic and kind of that miami drive 1984 first uh it's kind of like nostalgic tripping in a weird way becoming the vapor wave in a weird way it's important i i don't see any other options available at this time other than just becoming like a vaporwave aesthetic because it's really the the main way right now of just finding meaning and making sense of the world because otherwise like um it's just you know otherwise things are a bit lost in chaos but if you embrace that vaporwave aesthetic but not even like in a literal sense but just in terms of like the core essence maybe manifested in a new way too so i mean yeah it's just all about a lot of it a lot of that is like based on determinism or uh or materialistic calvinism because if you think about like determinism um a deterministic view of history uh everything is just sort of cycling in the manner that it should or, or would under any circumstances anyway. And so in understanding that, you sort of feel like a unity with all times of existence. And so uh, in that respect, um, the, the vaporwave aesthetic is sort of like claiming like the dignity, like pride and power of like, like a Roman emperor or like a Roman centurion, except you're, um, manifesting that within like a democratic system as, 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 a, as, a, as an everyman. And so you're an everyman and every woman, but you're, you're still like an emperor at the same time. And that's sort of like the, the bridge that is synthesized with the vaporwave aesthetic or a lot of other movements too that, that are, are manifestations of that quintessence. Patrick? It's nice talking to you. I hope to have you on again. Hey, thanks for having me on. And, uh, hope your audience has a good day or good evening, whatever it, wherever it is, uh, wherever is, they are. Is there any links? Are you just still on Twitter? Are yeah, there... just my Twitter is fine. All right. But you don't have any future projects like a book or anything like that coming up? I have a lot of notes. Uh, eventually, this stuff may be organized into a book or something. We'll see. All right. This podcast has been brought to you by uh, pilleter.substack.com, youtube.com slash pilleter, and www.pilleter.com.